Hi, and welcome to the Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dr. Ann Eglash. I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health and a board-certified lactation consultant. And I'm your co-host, Dr. Karen Bodnar. I am a pediatric hospitalist at Anova Children's Hospital and an assistant professor of pediatrics at Virginia Commonwealth University. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant. This podcast is produced by the Institute for the Advancement of Breastfeeding and Lactation Education and is co-sponsored by the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Hey, Karen. How are you? I'm good, Anne. How are you doing? Good. Well, this is super exciting. Um, We have so many physicians on our podcast today, on our Zoom podcast, um, who are all, many, probably most, are breastfeeding medicine specialists and sacrificing their time with their children to talk about how their breastfeeding medicine practices are changing now with the COVID pandemic. Yes, I'm so glad that you had this brilliant idea. And after we talked about it, we decided that we needed to spend really the first hour talking about outpatient um, practice and how people are adjusting to this current situation. And then we're going to spend a second hour focusing on inpatient and how we're dealing with um, those changes as well. Right. So, um, so thank you for everyone who has joined. Um, Karen and I are going to moderate um, some panelists. And we, um, as uh, Karen said, the first hour we'll do um, the outpatient experiences. And uh, what we're going to ask you to do is, first of all, we do know that some of you are from other countries. And so if you can just chat in any questions you have, but particularly if you're from another country and you have some things that you'd like to add, if you could just chat that in and we're hoping that we can find time to um, have you um, voice your experiences. And for anyone who is hoping that they can talk during this podcast, if you wouldn't mind using a computer mic because we are recording. So a mic that's through a telephone, if you're using your telephone to call in, the quality will not be very good. Um, So that mic would be helpful. Um, For everyone who's on, please know that this is recorded. So knowing that this also would be, this will be available um, for people to listen to for free. So just knowing that that we are not planning on editing things that people say unless you feel very strongly about wanting something that you said edited out before we post it. Uh, There will be two SERPs available. One SERP will be an L-SERP, and we figured that one SERP could actually be an ethics SERP because we will be talking about some of the ethical issues that have come up in the changes in our practice. Um, Okay, so um, I think we'll get started. Um, So I don't think Kathy... Leaper is on. Kathy Leaper was going to be our first panelist, but I don't think she's available. So I think we're going to start with uh, Pooja Kakar. Um, Pooja is a pediatrician and clinical instructor of pediatrics at Stanford University's Division of General Pediatrics, with her primary practice at Gardner Packard Children's Health Center, which is a federally qualified health center. She integrates breastfeeding medicine with outpatient clinical care and the education of residents and medical students. So welcome, Pooja. Thank you so much uh, for having me. It's an honor to be contributing to this discussion today. Um, So some of the things that I wanted to mention um, regarding our practice is, you know, our 
my three main goals um, when it came to uh, being readily available to our breastfeeding mothers. One has been, you know, continuing to be welcoming and accessible during this time of our state of emergency, um, but at the same time trying to minimize risks of transmission and keeping our family safe as well as our staff safe. Uh, in our area, we were um, hit relatively early um, with community transmission. And so at this point, we are trying to minimize most uh, visits, physical visits in our um, practice. Um, so right now we are seeing uh, newborns and follow-up visits within the first month of life. Um, and it's really important just to establish contact at that point and then continuing to follow up via uh, phone and telehealth visits. So my second um, point has been increasingly using telehealth and phone um, to expand our access to care and be able to encourage um, mothers and infants to continue to exclusively breastfeed. And I feel like uh, the third part of this that's really important um, is to continue to partner with our local resources and community organizations to make sure that we have wraparound support for families. And so with our clinic, we already had a close um, partnership with our WIC offices. And during this time, I have continued to remain in contact with our regional breastfeeding liaisons to be able to follow up with families that I'm seeing in clinic. Uh, the other aspect is to uh, continually um, communicate with um, with our local well baby nurseries and so you know some of us in the uh, division of general pediatrics are also doing uh, weekends in our well baby nursery at Lucille Packard and uh, my colleagues there as well know how to reach me whether it be by uh, sending a secure Qualtrics form or secure email in order to follow up with mothers and infants, even those who are not necessarily going to be following up in our clinic. I think some of the main challenges um, that come with making all of these, um, you know, adaptations and daily evolving um, challenges have been ensuring optimal care uh, with video visits. And I think that using, uh, you know, various modalities um, whether it be uh, verbal explanations and visual demonstrations, if you are able to get a video and um, audio visit with the mother, as well as being able to, you know, email or in some other way, um, send out additional uh, information to follow up is going to be really important. Great. Thank you. All right, next we're going to hear from Katrina Mitchell, who's a breast surgeon and breastfeeding medicine specialist in Santa Barbara, California. Hi, um, I think my practice is probably a little bit different, um, just the nature of surgery. So really the main changes in my surgery practice have been related to seeing only cancer patients and booking out, for example, fibroadenomas that can be seen in 30 or 60 days. And I think this reflects what's going on nationwide. Um, and I may be using more telemedicine for lactation as this um, kind of develops, but the nature of what I do in breastfeeding medicine, I think is a bit different than what others do. And most often it requires an exam. 
Um, and so far, none of my lactation patients and none of my cancer patients actually have wanted to cancel their in-person appointments. So I think it just really comes down to assessing the risk benefit in all of these individual clinical scenarios. And if it sounds like something that possibly doesn't need an exam, um, then we're set up for telemedicine here. But um, I had two patients, one with a mass on Friday um, that definitely did not want to cancel her appointment. Um, and just a few weeks ago, I actually had a plug, a patient that was sent to me with a plug that was actually a breast cancer. So um, I think it's really just taking every case individually and triaging it. Mm -hmm. Right. And what about um, for, I think one of the big concerns is um, patients who have respiratory symptoms. If you have a child with a cold, are you trying to keep people with respiratory infections out of your clinic? Um, fortunately, we don't um, have a lot of that right now. Where we are in Santa Barbara, I know it's a different situation in the Bay Area. Um, so we haven't actually had at least me individually, I'm trying to think of my surgical partner had someone show up to surgery actually with upper respiratory symptoms <laughs> last week and wanted to stay overnight so she didn't have to be with her husband um, who apparently had the same symptoms at home. So I think we are probably, you know, struggling to try to triage these people before they come in. But I guess individually, I haven't experienced this um, yet. I've had some um, kids with snotty noses, I guess, um, that have no other symptoms, like it's not a other concerning situation. Like, uh, I'm just trying to think of people individually right now. Yeah, um, that's okay. Yeah, I'm just wondering about office policy, really. Okay. Well, let's yeah, I mean, we have, in terms of office policy, we have in our cancer center, people are being stopped. I assume this is happening everywhere. People are being stopped at the door and asking if they have like a cough and a fever and they're getting their temperature taken. I don't know if that's right. what you mean. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Thanks. Um, so next we have Rebecca Hicks, who's a pediatrician and a IBCLC practicing outpatient pediatrics and lactation at an FQHC in Bend, Oregon. She did her residency at Stanford with the amazing Dr. Jane Morton, and then practiced as a newborn hospitalist at a large Stanford affiliate hospital. She moved to Oregon three years ago and started a lactation program at her current clinic. So welcome, Rebecca. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate being here today and being able to share these experiences. Um, so currently, I am the only breastfeeding medicine physician practicing in my town. And uh, as other lactation practices and as the WIC offices here in town have all closed, it's been very important for me to be able to continue seeing dyads in person. So I am doing some phone visits and um, have not yet done any uh, video chat visits, but I'm trying to get that up and running. But in the meantime, I have been needing to continue to see these dyads in person. So I tend to have the more challenging um, mother-baby dyads in our town and um, really, as you all know, need, need to be hands-on to help with the latch um, and to assess the, the oral anatomy for these dyads. So I've been able to continue seeing these, um, these mothers and babies and uh, so I work for a, a general pediatrics FQHC, but luckily we have six locations. So what we've done is turned one location into basically my location where I see only 
um, mothers and infants 12 months and younger, focusing heavily on trying to see newborns and the first month of life. So steps that we've taken to reduce transmission of any infectious disease during this time are that we're screening uh, on the phone the morning of the appointment. So we've pushed my appointments back a little bit. So I start a little bit later. So we have time to call every patient that morning so we can screen for symptoms over the phone. So we do that. And if, if a mother or, or the baby has any symptoms, then we do not allow them to come into clinic and we reschedule them um, and then turn that into just a phone only visit. So we screen them on the phone that morning, then we, we have our door locked and we screen them again on arrival. So the only people we want coming into the clinic are our mother baby dyads. So they come into the clinic, we take the mother's temperature and the baby's temperature and screen them again for any respiratory symptoms. And again, if they show up with any, any respiratory symptoms that they hadn't reported over the phone, then they're not allowed to come in. So then we have um, only two dyads uh, in the entire clinic physically at one time, one in the exam room with me and one can be checking in in the waiting room, but we've limited it to that. So we've spread our appointments out a little bit more. And then we are wiping things down tremendously with Sani wipes, um, wiping down the infant scale, wiping down the chairs, wiping down every surface that could have been touched. Um, I can't remember if I mentioned we're also not allowing fathers to come in, which has been hard, um, but we're having, or partners, I should say, um, we're, we're having patients express some discontent about that because, you know, these brand new moms with newborns they want help, they want support, they want other people to, to have this information. And, you know, sometimes they just want somebody to carry the car seat in for them, but we're being strict about only allowing the breastfeeding mother and the baby into the clinic. So far it's working well. Um, I've been really happy to be able to continue this work, but I, I can't say that it's not without concern. I do continue to have concern for asymptomatic spread and I'm doing what I feel like I can to, to mitigate that, but I just can't say for certain that this is something we'll be able to continue um, long-term if, uh, if this pandemic continues as long as some of us think it might. And why do you say that? <clears throat> well, if more and more um, true, true studies or research come out, suggesting that asymptomatic spread is one of the main modes of transmission, then I'm not sure that ethically I can continue um, to justify bringing patients in for in-person visits. Um, but I mean, it's a tough scenario. I really don't have the answer to it. It's just something on my mind because this work is so meaningful and so valuable to give these these tiny little humans who didn't ask to be born into a pandemic. We wanna give them the very best chance that we can, um, but I'm just not sure. I don't know what the answer is. If asymptomatic transmission is one of the main modes that this pandemic is being spread, I'm not sure that, that I should continue. Mm -hmm. What about, um, do you think that there's any way that you can continue if you are even more strict about, um, and I've heard some people having the next family and the stay in the car. And then um, one family's in the office, everything gets wiped down, the next family comes in after that. So there's absolutely no possibility for them to be, to come into contact with each other. I think, I think that's a reasonable next step. I also worry about 
myself, asymptomatic spread. What if I have it and I have no symptoms? And um, should I be wearing a surgical mask all the time? Should I be wearing an N95 mask all the time? I'm inches away from these mothers and babies' faces when I'm working to get a good latch. Um, and I don't have a good answer to that question. Right. Yeah. This is, this is really one of the most difficult questions. I guess one other thing I wanted to mention is um, the, the, the issue about not having the partner in. And I wonder um, if people call their partners to join in by, by phone into the, into the um, consultation. It hasn't happened yet, but um, I think it's something I could definitely suggest or bring up. Um, and that, that seems like that would be easy. Yeah, I actually do that a fair amount in my practice anyway. Um, even for a pediatric, like well child, sometimes a parent's working and they just want to be there for the well child exam. So they'll they'll just um, you know FaceTime in or or just call in to the to the um, exam. Hey, this is Karen. I you know I had the same idea when you were talking about um, partners. There are certainly times when we phone partners. We also sometimes make videos of um, parts of the latch process for both partners and for moms to be able to review once they go home. Oh, I'm going to interrupt myself and say anybody can write a question in the chat box if they want to. I also just added in into the chat box the name of a, a new um, tool that I just learned about this week called doxy.me, which is a um, HIPAA compliant, like it's supposed to be a telemedicine platform, but you could also just use that to reach out from the, you know, one, the, the patient or yourself to the partner um, who's not there. And it's really neat because you don't need an app. It's just free through the website and it's really easy to use. Um, so it's something some people might want to check out to, to start that. And then the other thought I had is in both, you know, myself thinking and Katrina and you, a lot of these visits do need to be hands-on, but sometimes we don't know until the visit starts really whether or not it's going to be. And I'm thinking as people get more hesitant to come to clinic, because I had some cancellations this week, it may be a way for us to at least start to help them and then figure out like which patients really need to come and which ones don't. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And I think if you have someone who can, if you have office staff who can do that kind of triage, that really helps quite a bit. I know, Karen, you've mentioned that you don't have that person. <laughs> I'll be the one doing it, but I'm still like grateful to have the opportunity to sort of check in with people because sometimes they really, especially for a second visit, like if things are going well, we can often work more on the phone if we don't require a wait. And not everybody I see for instance, people I'm treating for pain, I might not need to wait. Um, right. But sometimes you really do need to have them come back. Right. Can I say something about, um, about weighing and infant scales? I've seen um, on social media quite a bit of talk about suggesting that parents buy their own infant scale. And obviously that's limited to people who have the resources to do that. But I also just have concerns about the inaccuracy of those scales. So as I started this program a few years ago, we tried not to buy a $2,000 scale. And so I went through three other cheaper scales and they were wildly inaccurate. They really, really cannot be um, relied on for checking 
transfer in one feeding may be reliable for checking weights over two or three days, making sure you're moving in the right direction. But I have concerns about people suggesting that families buy infant scales um, to check transfer when I, I think you really have to have an expensive scale to get an accurate weight. Yeah, I find that, um, yes, I, I agree. This is Anne about the um, pre and post feed weights. But, you know, in this, if we're trying to keep people out of the office, I, I agree with you that we could, we could probably just go with like, how much are you supplementing? And what's the baby's weight? And that sounds good and not have to worry about the pre and post feed weight as a general rule, because our, you know, that micromanagement may not may have to be tossed aside at this point and then just making sure the infant's gaining appropriately. Um, there is a question um, about, does anyone have recommendations for the least expensive reliable scale? And um, anyone, if any of you who have, are on the panel for this hour um, want to chime in, I, and I think Rebecca, you answered that, that, um, you know, that you've tried several different ones. Um, I know I've had the hat, the hatch scale is kind of expensive. Some of my some of my patients have purchased that, but then I've had some people find some people um, you buy a thirty five dollar kitchen scale and have really liked it and have found it to be reliable when they report weights and then when we check in as well. But I'm not sure which brand that is. So if anyone has any ideas, you can chat in. This is Katrina, um, and you had suggested a a couple years ago, a Seca scale that I had in my last practice. And I was happy with that. But then my new practice gave me a scale that is one of, you know, the um, clinical scales like the pediatricians have. And I have to say, I, I like that better. Um, and then also I realized as Rebecca was talking and she was detailing the, um, the procedures they have for patients and the wiping down with, uh, with, wipes. We have that all in place in our cancer center. And I guess that I didn't realize that's what our questions were about. I was thinking more about, I have, I guess, the luxury of the staffer doing that. Um, and so I'm not the individual person screening patients or we have restrictions for family members. Um, and, but I'm not the person telling people that, you know, they can't bring extra family members in, but we have basically a policy uh, throughout all of our clinics and our physician group. Mm -hmm. standard. Okay. Well, I think I'm going to um, bring on um, our last uh, panelist for this hour, uh, Shauna Lamond. And Shauna is a family physician and breastfeeding medicine specialist in Calgary, Alberta, and Canada. She's the director of two infant feeding clinics in Calgary, one in Riley Park, one called Riley Park Lactation, and the other called Well-Fed Clinic. And she has a special interest in musculoskeletal issues that affect suck, swallow, and latch. And she's also a clinical lecturer at the University of Calgary Cummings School of Medicine. Hi, Shauna. Can you guys hear me now? There you go. Yep. You okay. You. Okay. Well, thanks for having me. Um, we have a bit of a different system uh, in Canada because we have um, a fairly uh, everyone's connected because we have a public health care system. In fact, Alberta has the highest testing rate for COVID-19 in North America right now. So we are very heavily testing patients uh, for COVID-19. We uh, have a process right now where we phone screen all our patients the day four clinics. And if they screen negative on the phone, then like Rebecca was saying, they can come into clinic. We screen again at the door. 
And so we have far fewer people coming in the office. We've made a commitment to no people in the waiting room. So we will call people in from their cars uh, when we're ready for them. So we do have a number of rooms actually. And so we only, um, we book lightly and then the rest of them are phone and video conferences throughout our day. Um, right now what we're doing is trying to Whoops, I think you're cutting out. The babies. Oh, sorry. Oh, you were just cutting out. Can you hear me? That's better. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, is that better? So we have um, our public health nurses who normally do all the um, TCB and waits right after um, hospital discharge have been diverted to uh, testing and call centers. So what we've had to figure out as a lactation group, and luckily we have a robust group of us, is how we pick up uh, the postpartum discharges. So we've been in conversation with the low-risk maternity groups, obstetrics, and public health over the past week to make sure these babies don't fall through the cracks. So we are developing a protocol where all screening negative patients will be sent to one of the breastfeeding clinics, and the positive patients are gonna be remaining at home in isolation, and we will do care delivered in their house in full PPE. So this is uh, how we've managed to try and cope with these changes. Um, everyone in Canada here pretty much is on self-isolation now. There's not a lot of movement. People are not doing things. Um, so there's very little movement uh, to most family medicine clinics right now. Um, one of the big problems that I was talking about with our director at the Milk Bank is they have very few donors coming forward right now because in order to get the blood work done, they have to go to one of our public labs and they do not want to go to them right now. So we're in the process of figuring out a safe way that they feel like they can get that screening done so they can still donate milk. And we're trying to figure out um, some of the volunteer groups that can go around and pick up milk from women's house so they don't have to leave. So we're in the process of sort of partnering with everyone from uh, the uh, pregnancy care providers to the hospital, to public health, to the milk bank, to try and create a web where we keep these babies healthy um, with low risk, um, higher risk individuals and COVID positive. So it is quite a process here. Yeah, that's amazing. So it sounds like you have much more testing and would you say that um, anyone can uh, get a test in, for COVID that they who wants to? So we have a screening tool online. So you go to Alberta Health and you go do the screening tool online. And if it is that it says that you should get a swab, then you call 811, which is our, our number. And that's what public health is staffing right now. And then you are directed to a drive-through or a testing center. So we have our testing centers are screening a lot. And our numbers aren't jumping really quickly now because we we have, we have really gotten social uh, distancing and home isolation happening very quickly in Alberta. And uh, our numbers jumped up yesterday, but not nearly as quickly as they did the previous days. I'm hoping that this is starting to flatten here. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, but yes, we are testing. I mean, I think the numbers I looked at today, we are the number one testing jurisdiction in North America. So someone asked, who is doing the um, home visit? So the home visits will actually be public health and one of us lactation physicians likely who will go in in full PPE gear and the only reason I would go into the house is if a phrenotomy needed to be done to protect breastfeeding. So actually if 
it is that it is a COVID positive family. Uh, public health actually still will go in in full gear for one of the public health nurses and they will do the uh, TCB screening, the weight and draw the blood work on the baby. Um, if we will do the rest of it, uh, we'll do the rest of the visit by video conferencing. And I have 15, I think I have 15 scales that will go out to those homes with public health so we can follow that infant's weight for two to five days and make sure that it's trending up. And so the only reason we would go in is if the public health nurse is thinking that it really is a tongue tie that's, that's impacting uh, a negative breastfeeding relationship and then we would go do that assessment. So we're hoping that that isn't too many families. Uh, but we have gear, we have our PPE gear at our and we will be ready to go in if we need to. Great, okay. Um, someone asked about um, having mothers wear masks when they come in for the visits. Anyone have any comments about that? Yeah, hi, this is Pooja. I um, responded in the chat, but just to elaborate, so, um, Given current PPE shortages, we aren't seeing shortages in our clinic yet, but are starting to within Stanford. Um, we are not having moms wear masks. However, there are some physicians based on personal discretion that are choosing to wear um, a simple surgical uh, face mask uh, in order to you know, avoid us um, uh, uh, spreading um, you know, asymptomatic transmission to our patients. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think other steps that um, that we have also taken have been to uh, move towards skeleton uh, crews within our clinic. So um, our our setup has been uh, before COVID um, that we have a separation uh, with distinct sides of clinic uh, for continuity well visits and for our urgent care sick visits with separate entrances for each. So um, in some ways we were already uh, prepared uh, for this, but um, you know, I think that that separation also helps to um, divide the other staff and clinic nurses, MAs that are attending um, to patients and overall minimizing the visits that are coming in. So for our practice, all visits under two years old are only coming in for a vaccine visit. Um, but if there are questions, then we are answering them via phone or a telehealth visit. And uh, for uh, you know, only our newborns and infants, un, you know, under a month old uh, are the ones that are getting face-to-face -face visits at this point. And, you know, that that's something that is is challenging to move to towards, especially in our, um, in our community. But um, we're kind of seeing how things go. And then to comment on Karen's um, uh, uh, post about uh, DoxyMe. That's been the main service that we've been um, playing around with with our telehealth visits and have been moderately successful with that so far. Great. And what about other people? Are other people getting ramped up for like a standard telehealth situated telehealth um, process or program? I would say that um, from my own experience at the University of Wisconsin, we were uh, about to launch in the next year or so our telehealth, uh, full telehealth program. And um, we are now launching it this week uh, in order to, um, to actually provide telehealth in a more 
comprehensive way than just the phone calls that we've been making in the last week. Um, I think that I'll just join in as a panelist <laughs> and tell you what's happening at the, at the University of Wisconsin. Um, according to our administration, we have the largest um, outpatient primary care system um, in an academic setting in the country. And so we have about um, 30 primary care clinics, which includes PZOB and family medicine. And then um, in family medicine, we are, we are trying to distill ourselves down to 10 sites um, in order to uh, close some of our clinics. And so uh, we, our breastfeeding medicine practice is three physicians between three different clinics. And so uh, we have one main phone number for our breastfeeding clinic, and then our nurses triage those patients to one of the three clinics and we're spread around the county. And so the fear that I've had is that um, because some of us are gonna be in telemedicine and some of us are gonna be in the clinics with limited face-to-face, -face, and the three of us are in different parts of the county now being, brought, now being split up into separate clinics, we're, we're having to refigure how our patients are going to reach us, how our referrals are going to come to us. And so um, it's um, quite stressful right now. I also feel that um, there's more urgency in helping these families. And so whereas undoubtedly patients would wait a couple of weeks to see us, um, they would first see a lactation consultant in the community and then wait to see us for more advanced breastfeeding medicine care just because we're booked. Now I feel not only are we trying to get them in faster, but also um, we're seeing things that the lactation consultants could probably be seeing because they're not as available. So it's kind of, I don't know for any of you who are on the panel, if you feel like it's changing the breastfeeding medicine patients that you're seeing, if you're seeing more basic stuff because the other, because the lactation consultants in the community are not able to do the primary care lactation work. Hey, Anne, this is Karen. I had mentioned to you on the phone that, you know, my um, practice is normally people who have seen multiple providers before they make it to me. And often I have a lot of older babies and because they've shut down our hospital support group and they have um, stopped a couple of other outpatient um, lactation providers, I mean, the hospital inpatient lactation consultants normally do a few outpatient visits. They've um, decided they're not going to do that right now. I've decided to limit my new patients to babies who are um, less than two months because babies who are older than that, you know, the moms are feeding them something. So hopefully they can at least continue with what they're doing. Whereas the, the younger ones, I feel like it's more critical to try to intervene at this point. Mm -hmm. But it's too soon to say how that is going to play out with the numbers of visits that we're going to see. I, you know, look at all the different posts everybody's doing here in the chat, and there's people who have great access to testing and people with none like us, and people who have great PPE and people who have none, people who might be sending scales home. We have 10,000 deliveries a year. That is not going to work for us. Great, great. All right, anyone else have anything to add regarding outpatient management? How many of you um, have, so I know, I think it was Rebecca who said that you have, oh no, it was Shauna who has the connection with public health. And I feel like the public health system, from what I understand and talking to various physicians in Canada, 
that public health plays a very important role in newborn care um, in some of the provinces. And, um, and I'm wondering if um, this is something that um, others are, if, if this is something that people in the United States have been experiencing, what their connection has been to public health in their communities. Um, I can speak for public health here in Central Oregon. Um, well, I can't speak for them, but I can tell you um, my interactions with them have been that they are extremely overwhelmed, that they are so overwhelmed with the lack of testing supplies and the lack of PPE um, among our community. And we are unfortunately one of those communities. And, and I think my whole state really is affected by very um, critically limited ability to test and, um, and criti critical shortages of PPE. So they're so overwhelmed with that, that um, they haven't been able to continue their um, standard efforts in any other arena in a meaningful way. Uh -huh. So um, what about, so what have you heard about WIC? So um, Dr. Susan Crow, uh, mentioned that WIC has closed in her area, which has had a huge impact. Um, maybe we'll have Susan talk about that. Um, let me see if I can unmute you, Susan. I think I just unmuted myself. Are you? Me? Yeah. No, it's just, you know, I work in the OB clinic and we're in different silos um, at Stanford and um, the OB clinic patients that we've had multiple people coming through who have not gotten the breastfeeding support that they usually would get at WIC. Um, and so I just, I see that becoming a worse and worse problem for them. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I had talked to one state breastfeeding uh, WIC coordinator who said that they were pretty much trying to, you know, still bring in people. I'm doing some drive through um, food packages, things like that, like trying to come up with creative ways to keep the social distancing. Uh, but they also said they're having trouble getting formula. And um, she cited a, um, a client who wasn't, was Amish, who was breastfeeding, but her baby at six months was 13 pounds. And they felt that the baby needed alimentum and they didn't have any and they couldn't get it. And so they were quite worried about that. And so um, I had suggested that she contact the milk bank um, in that state to see if they could come up with some sort of arrangement or communication about how to help some of these desperate families. Mm. Yeah. I haven't heard anything about that specifically. Yeah. This, this is Katrina. I'm, I'm actually interested in the formula question because when I was, uh, grocery shopping yesterday, I actually went by the formula aisle to just see what was going on because of course we literally have no toilet paper anywhere and like all of the stuff that's going on elsewhere. Um, and I was interested to see that the formula aisle was completely stocked. Has anyone noticed that in, in, in their, so, their communities? <laughs> Can you say that again, Katrina? I'm sorry, I missed, I was um, watching, but I was reading what Yvette had said about Puerto Rico. Um, can you say that you- can you're, comment on it, Katrina, and recap as well. So she was saying she noticed there was no toilet paper, but the formula aisle was totally stocked. Oh, interesting. Um, and what I would say is, from my experience looking at different grocery stores here, it probably had more to do with the fact that they had just restocked the formula 
than that it had gotten bought out because you'll notice like every day a different thing is missing and it's because there's no problem with the supply chain. There's lots that's going to keep going into the stores, but as soon as they stock it, people are buying it out. At least here, they've been oh. asking us in the hospital to send extra formula home. Some families have been asking us because there's like, there's none in the stores. Yeah. So I think I, it was just a timing thing. Okay. Cause I had assumed that was going to be the first thing that people hoarded, um, which is why I was so interested to see it stocked. And then I thought maybe it was because the formula supply chain is so strong that it's actually <laughs> way stronger than, for example, toilet paper, which is kind of scary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is Pooja. We've been getting um, similar questions uh, from our Well Baby Nursery um, at Packard as well. And um, we've been telling uh, families that they can also contact the formula companies directly. I don't have personal experience with this, but based on our, um, you know, the threads on social media um, with physician breastfeeding groups, it seems to be a viable option. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm interested in hearing from Yvette with how to hear how things are going in um, Puerto Rico. Yvette, can you, uh, can you talk? Can we hear you? I need to wait. <laughs> oh, I, you're on now. Let's see. Can you hear me now? Yes. Can you hear me? Yes. Oh, yes. Well, in Puerto Rico, uh, what we're doing, we're doing a lot of Zoom conferences for pediatricians. We created like a chat for disasters. And uh, we're trying like everywhere. And we have here a limited, we've been quarantined since last Sunday. So everybody's staying at home. So, so we're getting a lot of, I've done a lot of teleconferencing and screening people. I have only gone to my office twice this past week and I wasn't really how I was gonna do then the World Baby uh, visits next week and we just the governor just created a task force and included the director of the pediatric hospital because we're really concerned when the cases start jumping up we've had one death and 23 confirmed cases but very limited testing apparently it's going to start tomorrow when i heard uh, our colleague from alberta so easy was to get tested we have no testing and we had the problems here about the cruise ships staying here and but we we're, we're i think we're gonna do a good way with the quarantine. It's been working quite well. So that's good. all I have to say for now. Yeah, yeah. So are you doing, in terms of like pediatric care in the clinics, are you, did, what, what people have been talking about, is that similar to what's happening in Puerto Rico too, where you're trying to limit the number of people that you're seeing in the office and focusing on newborns and other urgent issues? Exactly. Yeah, most, um, most uh, only big clinics maybe are still working. Most uh, we're doing all by telephone. And like I told you last week, I worked two days out of seven and tried to match everything via telephone and video conference. So we went two days to immunize some children. And, uh, and we're doing it day by day because, it, you know, we have so many other issues that, that we have to solve. So basically... I'm learning with all of your experience at the same time, but we're screening. Uh, my office building, for example, is closed. We have digital entrance and persons call us from their car. We go down, somebody from the office goes down, escorts two people up, and then they go down. So we're seeing patients on a one-to-one -one basis. Uh -huh. Limiting 
people in the elevators and trying to continue with the social distancing. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I want to thank you, Yvette. Um, I want to uh, talk about telemedicine. Some people have been asking about um, telemedicine and um, in ways that they're using that. Um, I guess I would start by saying that we've been very fortunate at the University of Wisconsin that we have had our plan in place and we have been using it in urgent care for some time and it's just has been an issue of rolling it out to the primary care physicians who have not been using it yet. So we're hoping to do that next week. But up until then, we, um, because we have Epic and um, we've been using, we've converted uh, visits to telehealth and they've just been phone calls and then what we've been trying to do is document the work that we're doing by using our e the enum code is actually just a 02012, which is like the phone message code. And then you can put in your minutes so that we can document what we're doing. Um, and then just documenting just our conversation via phone. Um, our patients can send in photos, which is nice. Uh, we just, I think that's probably an upgrade that everyone got for Epic. And that's been helpful for things like rashes. Um, I had um, one mother who I did a telemedicine visit for who I had not seen before. And uh, the, the, I can't remember exactly what the issue was, but I, but I thought like one thing that needed to be ruled out was a tongue tie. And the baby was going to her family, to the baby's family doctor. And so the family doctor took a picture under the tongue and sent it to me. Um, and that was really helpful. So. Um, kind of working together with different people. That's where um, having in EMRs, particularly, I don't know of any other EMRs, I just know of Epic, but that's been very helpful. Um, so I'm wondering if anyone else has any other comments about what they're doing for um, telehealth. Anyone on the phone? I guess you um, I can I can comment a little bit. We. Um... If that's okay, we started offering telehealth in in Columbus, Ohio. We use eClinical Works. This is Rebecca, right, Dr. Hicks? This is this is Divya, Divya Parikh. Oh, hi, Divya. Hi. 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 Um, yeah. So we we are using um, Hilo to to coordinate with all of our patients, and it works pretty well. They kind of they get web enabled, and they kind of um, we schedule them, and then they they log into the visit through their app. Um, and I've done, I've done one lactation visit in the last week via telehealth. Um, I mean, I think it's, it's been helpful in that, you know, it's, we can reach them, we can see them in their home environment and do everything. The way we've been billing for it, um, we have a different way of billing for it. We have like 99201 to 99213, you know, that ENM code for it with a GH modifier. Um, and that's sort of how our group has been doing it. So maybe that might be something worth looking into so you can get reimbursed a little better. Um, is that, does that, does that um, dovetail into Epic or is that a totally separate, like do you use Epic where you are? We, we don't use Epic, we use eClinical Works. Um, but, yeah. And that we are using that with our Epic in oh, DC okay. area. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I would be curious to know if anybody else who has been doing it, if they have like specific scenarios that are better suited to televisits versus others that really should just be try to come into the office. Um, that's sort of what I've been trying to tease out a little bit better. Yeah. 
Mm -hmm. I can comment on that. Um, this is Pooja again. With our, um, you know, I think the importance of the initial consultation still remains. And so it depends on like degree of um, weight loss and, um, you know, how comfortable mom feels with breastfeeding if she's had prior breastfeeding experience. Um, based on that and then other factors like if we need to follow up on a on a bilirubin as well then we'll um have a, a follow-up visit um but if um they seem to be doing relatively well and we think that um you know it, it's sort of based on judgment rather than a precise algorithm at this point um but yeah based on that we sort of figure out if um, doing the telehealth visit will be adequate. And then, you know, the other part of it is that you can also use it as a sort of triage, whether it's, you know, a physician doing this or a nurse to determine, you know, if they really warrant an in-person visit, you can use the um, video or just a phone visit to screen for needing to come in or not. Right. I think I think it depends on the population you've seen, and certainly this whole decision-making process of who's you know who's already on the schedule now, who can we convert to a telehealth visit is going to be so individual, like those um, breastfeeding consults. I would say about ten percent of what I do um, in my breastfeeding medicine clinic is uh, our prenatal consultations as well as um, induced lactation and for adoption or surrogacy, and those I can certainly do over the phone except when it comes to like checking their pumps. Um, but even that, we can once we have the telehealth up and I can actually see what's going on, I can actually, um, other than not being able to put a gauge on their pump, you know, I think, I think that will help quite a bit. So I think a number of the patients that I see I'll be able to do via telehealth. But whenever there's a weight check, it's trying to figure out like how to get that weight and then how to watch a suck and how, which I guess you could do via telehealth and then being able to look under the tongue. And I think it's very difficult. I even find that my, residents who work with me teaching them how to isolate the tongue and how to lift up the tongue to look at a frenulum is tricky and it's particularly going to be hard for parents to be able to demonstrate that via telehealth. Hey Anne, uh, this is Karen again. I would say when I think about trying to triage patients and um, sort of deal with the most urgent problems because if this goes on for a long time, which I think we're starting to think more and more that it will, if we're continuing to restrict the you know number of patients coming to the healthcare system, the ones that really can't go to their primary doctor, and this will probably come up in the second hour as well. Um, you know, I want to know: Are those babies getting enough nutrition? Do we need to increase supplementation with pumped milk or formula? I need to know whether or not the mom is really effectively removing her milk, and so. You know, I'm sure you guys have, a lot of you who listen to our podcast have heard me say this before, but I have like, when breastfeeding sucks, which is all the time for people who come to see me, I have a three-step plan. One, feed the baby something. Two, remove milk. And three, maximize rest. And so for number one, I may not be able to weigh that baby, but being able to see the baby's mouth and talk about the output it will, depending if it's a really small baby, you know, let me know whether or not we need to do some sort of urgent increase in the amount the baby's getting. And then for a lot of people, you know, they might not be gaining optimally. They may be getting 15 grams a day rather than 30, but that baby isn't going to be in giant trouble if they don't come in in two days, if they're gaining, albeit slowly. 
And mm -hmm. so I think about this as sort of trying to identify which ones, okay, I can tell that that baby is thriving. Okay, I can tell that baby's not. Okay, this person, I don't know, they need to come. And then really seeing people pump. I see so many people in my practice who are just not effectively removing milk. They've been mm -hmm. given the wrong size flanges or other things like that. So I think those are the places where I'll focus trying to initiate with telehealth. I'm curious what people think about that and how they might change it. Right. Great comments. Um, I, wanted, oh, I wanted to ask um, Adrian White um, to unmute and see if she wanted to mention something about telehealth and at UC Davis. Hi, everybody. Um, I am a general pediatric academic fellow at UC Davis, and Laura Kerr um, and I are studying telehealth and late preterm infants. Um, She's not on the call right now, but I discussed um, talking about our research. I don't have any results to discuss, now, but I can tell you about my personal experience with conducting the lactation visits via telehealth. Um, we started doing visits uh, for late preterm infants back in September, and I do the majority of the clinical visits um, using Zoom video um, and then documenting um, our notes in Epic. I cannot comment about billing because we um, have not been billing our patients since it is, they are research visits. Um, I would say that the majority of my impression is that we've had, um, that the mothers have really appreciated the telehealth visits. Um, and you can really get a pretty good, not great, but pretty good assessment of latch. Um, and just by visualizing the baby's mouth um, on the breast, you can get a pretty decent breast examination. Um, if mom goes into the bathroom with her phone and turns on all the lights, um, it's not perfect, but it's, I would say that in the time of COVID pandemic, it's much better than nothing. Um, and then I've certainly helped out moms with uh, fitting their um, breast pump appropriately and just like plugging it in and as many of you know, so much of what we do is counseling, and it's, I think that it's been really invaluable. Um, I can't comment on our results because we haven't examined our results yet, but that's been my impression. Great. Thank you. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that you do Zoom, but um, Zoom, uh, I guess, do, we, do you have concerns about the HIPAA-compliant issue? So I, we have a HIPAA compliant access to Zoom at UC Davis, but I've heard that in the last week, um, that the Department of Health and Human Services have waived um, a lot of the, the platform necessities for having HIPAA compliance. Obviously, every practice has to discuss what they are comfortable with doing. Um, and then recently at UC Davis, we, we now have tele, um, televisits embedded within Epic. So those are um, HIPAA compliant. Great, thank you. Yeah, I did no hear problem. that. That was also um, through the UW that uh, they are the um, I think it's off Office of Civil Rights um, from the U.S. government has waived the HIPAA compliant um, rule, but uh, they're still encouraging us to use the HIPAA compliant. You know, to use HIPAA. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, anything else? I think we're going to in about just a few minutes we'll switch over to the in hospital issue. Um, Anyone from any other country who would want to talk about what they're doing in their country? Um, and then also, um, oh, there's Laura. 
Um, Laura, you're in, are you in, is Laura in Quebec? So Laura, do you want to speak? she might be coming on here oh sorry I, I just came in i don't know i i so i um, yeah we're just finishing up our first hour our section on how our breastfeeding medicine practices are changing in the outpatient sector so knowing that you're from a different part of you're in quebec is that correct yes yes um, so, you want to mention how things are going there so here, uh, in, uh, a week ago, we went into telemedicine. Uh, uh, that, so yeah, so we, the pediatric clinics, baby clinics, breastfeeding clinic, we're, we're all doing it uh, either by phone or by video cam, by Zoom. And now in their electronic chart, they have integrated a, a, a telemedicine function. So we can use that. And they're discouraging uh, face-to-face -face interviews. Um, can you repeat me the question again? <laughs> because I... Oh, yeah, no, and any other way that you feel that um, your, uh, your, like your routine and caring for breastfeeding medicine? Yeah, so, so essentially, you know, I went with my colleague, Christian Charette, who's, I don't know if she's on the call, um, and, you know, tried to decide, you know, if, if there were what issues patient would have to come in um, for breastfeeding clinic. But uh, so far, all my patients, you know, the patients don't want to come in so to the clinic either. So it's a really, um, I haven't encountered a situation yet that, that I cannot do on telemedicine. I haven't had a phrenotomy, for example, yet. But when the occasion comes, I guess we'll have to uh, will have to be uh, in person. And the other idea that we were having, I just bought a baby scale for borrowing. Uh, so the patients don't have to, you know, one of the main indicators for breastfeeding success is uh, weight, weight gain, weight change. So the, my clinic closed. Uh, we are a satellite clinic with a big, a big uh, other primary care clinic. So my, my smaller clinic closed and there's two or two other baby scales that I can borrow. So we would have three baby scales for the patients to take home to follow up the weight. And um, yeah, the only thing we're keeping here for now is vaccinations and any other reason that uh, requires in-person visit. But the vaccinations we decided, public health has decided to keep two, two months, four months, and 12 months, anything after 12 months, it can be delayed. We don't have a six month vaccination in our calendar anymore. So it's a big adaptation, but it's going very well. We expect to see 90% of our patients from home. Excellent. And so Joss is asking uh, what kind of scale you're using, what kind of skills you're using? Well, so I, bought, I have to say, I, I, I discussed with the lactation consultant and I bought one that wasn't too expensive. It has a, a plus minus five gram uh, error. Mm -hmm. um, it's it has a funny Finnish name. I can I can give you the name in a minute. Um, oh, there, there's a camera here. Okay, <laughs> and uh, oh, no one has a camera, so I'm gonna take it. Yeah, out. we're actually not using yeah, cameras. Uh, so yeah, so I decided it's a, it's it's not expensive. It's sixty dollars Canadian plus tax. So so. I figured it was worth. 
Um, and we also wanted to recommend that in that clinics in general uh, uh, try to equip themselves with extract scales. So Christian is on the call. So I don't know, Christian, if you have uh, talked already. I'm sorry. Uh, uh, good afternoon. No, I did not uh, talk yet. Um, we're just trying to. Uh, we're just sorting this out um, uh, in the last week or so. Uh, personally, I did one um, uh, breastfeeding assessment uh, with a video camera with Zoom, and I was very satisfied. The, the mother, too. Uh, the nurse was in presence uh, with, uh, was uh, in the same room with the mother. It went really well. It was um, for uh, pain um, with breastfeeding for a baby that was almost three months old. And we, we did get a, a good idea, uh, of the situation. I was thinking, uh, today I heard that some ENT, um, do the, uh, or even dentists that do the phrenotomies in the uh, baby in the car seat. And I was just trying to figure out if we could consider this, um, we may drive through. Um, okay. yeah. yeah, yeah, it seems like other people have said that, have said that as well. And I, I just want to close with one uh, thought, and that is that um, I've noticed that other specialists have been paying attention to the needs of breastfeeding dyads, at least in our community, our ENTs have been, um, who are in other parts of the county, have been willing to um, see babies with tongue ties like that day and just clip them um, because their offices also are not very busy. And, you know, if you think about ENT patients, that's where all the COVID is sitting is right in that nose. And so they, I don't think, really want to do much in the way of any ENT surgery unless it's an emergency like trachs or, um, uh, you know, like trauma is my understanding. And so they have a lot of availability right now if they're skilled at uh, doing phrenotomies. Um, uh, I know that um, Dr. Kathy Leeper was going to be one of our first speakers, and she's now on. Um, I, I know that she was uh, busy. I am. I am. Yeah. So can you just, so we're going to move into the hospital portion of our conversation, but I want you, because you have kind of a unique practice, um, I thought that we could just get you to talk for like two minutes about what you're doing at your, in your practice. And I'll just yes. do a brief introduction. <laughs> that you are, Dr. Kathy Leeper is a pediatrician and breastfeeding medicine specialist who co-founded a nonprofit breastfeeding medicine center called Milkworks in Lincoln, Nebraska with a second clinic in Omaha. I am so sorry. I was on another Zoom with my lactation consultants and it took an hour longer than I anticipated because we are starting telehealth tomorrow and um, wanted to talk through all of the logistics of that. So that is one thing that we're doing that is brand new is in talking with everyone, um, we are going to try and triage nearly everyone via telehealth first um, for our lactation visits. And um, we are not allowing anyone to come in to the, in the front door without an appointment um, starting tomorrow. So that is the biggest difference. Um, hey, Kathy, can I ask you a question? Just because sure. I saw a post that you put up, and we just talked a little before you got on about how um, 
insurance was going to pay for telehealth and some legislation has happened to waive some of the rules about HIPAA compliant platforms, yep. but you had mentioned trying to ensure that malpractice was going to cover those lactation consultants for their telehealth work. And I'm wondering if you've gotten any more clarity on that. Ah, um, we filled out a form on Friday answering questions and I truthfully have not heard back that that has been approved, but um, they, the, person who sent us the form said that they didn't think it was going to be a problem and I guess I feel like in this current moment um, we're going to go ahead anyway. Based on my understanding of our malpractice as physicians that we can only see people in states or see virtually. We can only do telehealth with women who are in the state in which we are licensed. So we will start with only Nebraska and um, until we get clarity that they would be okay to talk to someone across the border. Okay. Thanks. Well, thank you so much. Um, so I think we're going to move into the hospital portion, which I think we have so much to talk about in that realm. Um, so those of you who were on the initial panel, uh, thank you so much. And I'm going to ask you to mute. And then for those who are going to be speaking on the second half, um, I'll, I will ask you to unmute. And uh, we'll start with Dr. Chandria Johnson, who's an OBGYN with an interest in breastfeeding medicine, practicing at Mercy Hospital in Springfield, Missouri. Her primary job is a full-time OB hospitalist. She also works part-time in the office practicing breastfeeding medicine and collaborating with the hospital-based midwifery program. So welcome, Chandria. Hi, thank you for inviting me to contribute to this webinar today. My area has only recently been directly affected by COVID with about 11 confirmed cases, including several critically ill patients. My facility is trying to plan for the expected rapid increase of COVID patients over the next few weeks. And we are unfortunately already seeing shortages of PPE. We stopped all elective procedures a week ago, closed our outpatient surgery centers and started limiting screening and screening visitors last week. Yesterday, we severely restricted to include no visitors for most patients, one support person for laboring patients with no switch-offs, two parents or guardians max for each NICU baby. All visitors and employees are screened for fever and symptoms upon entry to the hospital. We reviewed last week and adopted the University of Washington's protocols for management of pregnant laboring and birthing mothers who have influenza-like illness, confirmed COVID-19, or are persons under investigation. UW has provided triage guidelines for outpatient and inpatient OB patients to direct if and where patients are evaluated if they have concerns for influenza-like illnesses. We, in our facility, we now have a dedicated OB operating room and two dedicated labor rooms for influenza-like illness and COVID-19 patients. Our hospital as a whole has a designated ICU and a medical floor for COVID patients. The NICU has a majority of private rooms at baseline and can maintain isolation for preterm or sick babies as needed. Due to the significant decrease in surgical volume, our women's surgical unit, which is already equipped and the staff is cross-trained for mother-baby care, will, at least in part, become a COVID isolation unit for mother-baby care as needed. This will allow for mothers and babies to be isolated either together or separately as the clinical situation and the mother's preferences demand. This will keep term well PUI babies out of the NICU. I have advocated to follow the University of Washington protocol, which is in line with the ABM recommendations to keep term well babies with the mothers who are mildly ill or PUI, using masks for breastfeeding and keeping babies six feet away from the mother when not feeding. The NICU docs are currently reviewing this plan and we will have an official policy for our hospital likely tomorrow morning. 
Some hospitals are recommending automatic separation of mothers and babies if COVID-19 is suspected or confirmed. There are logistical concerns with this, as every isolated well baby will need one-to-one -one dedicated caregiver, which may potentially need to be a hospital staff member if the mother does not have a support person available. For mothers who are separated or otherwise need pumping, we do have breast pumps available in every postpartum room that stay with the patient until discharge, allowing for easy sterilization and sanitization. This will allow mothers to pump as needed, even in isolation. For our mothers with serious illnesses who will require ICU care, we have breast pumps that can go to the ICU with the patient and stay with her for the duration of admission to the ICU. Our ICU nurses are familiar with the breast pumps and we have experience with helping mothers in critical care situations establish and maintain breastfeeding. One unknown is handling of expressed breast milk and whether that would be how and whether that would be transported to the baby to use in the case of acute illness. One other area of concern I have going forward is finding the balance between early discharge to get the dyads home to minimize hospital exposures and keeping them long enough to ensure a successful start to feeding for baby and ensuring mom is without complication prior to discharge. And this is an area of work in progress. Great. Thank you so much for that review. That was uh, very, very helpful. It gave us a, a very good glimpse of what's happening. And I was going to ask about the cleaning of the bottles of breast milk before they go over to the baby. And obviously you said that that's something that you're working out at this point. We do right? not have an official plan for that. My suggestion, I was thinking about this earlier today. I think that my suggestion would be have mom express the milk, put a lid on the container and then have someone, a gloved person, wipe the outsides of the containers, drop them into one of those clean Ziploc bags, and then leave the room with that, and then transfer it cleanly somehow. I can't mm -hmm. think of any other way to ensure that the outside of the containers would not be contaminated potentially in mom's room. Right. Right. If anyone else, any other suggestions, I would love to hear it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I think the other the other um, point that you brought up is interesting too about the early discharge. And I've had a couple patients in the last week who delivered and left within 24 hours just because they wanted to get out of the hospital setting. And um, and then it, then it's almost like plain hot potato with these families because we have to figure out where how are they the safety net is now changing so suddenly um, for many of us in the United States who are used to having our patients stay um, for the first 48 hours. Um, but that segues into our next presenter, um, Karen, I don't know if you want to. Oh, yeah. So um, Joss Anderson is, uh, works at Monarch in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada, maternal and newborn care clinic, which receives hospital discharges for smooth transitions back to their primary care provider. She also provides breastfeeding medicine and newborn care at the hospital and teaches medical students and residents. Hi everybody. All right, so my kind of ties everything together. So I'm in Ottawa, the capital of Canada, if nobody knows. Um, we have actually just today confirmed community spread, but it was suspected last week. We have estimated about 4,000 cases, about 20 positive here. Our city has been doing um, stay at home and we've ramped down all non-essential uh, visits, so closing ORs, et cetera. So in the hospital, uh, so I do newborn care um, because we directly link with our discharges to our Monarch Clinic. Um, and our hospital works on a 24 to kind of 48 hour discharge, so ready-based discharge. Um, the protocol for actually what we're doing is still hoping to be confirmed. 
um, in the next little bit, uh, very similar to Chandri's. Um, if it's COVID positive, then the baby, if the mom is still well, they're actually keeping the baby in the room. Um, they, they're, they're having a drape though, so mom can have the baby to breastfeed, but otherwise there's another support person in the room that will be doing all baby care otherwise. Um, if the baby's, if the mom's not well, uh, then the baby is being taken to the special care nursery, the NICU. Um, if they're a person kind of under investigation, they get discharged home, they're actually getting a call from the nurse within 24 hours. And the problem here is we actually don't know what the plan is if they are positive and where their follow-up care is going. So currently, um, a large number of the patients get discharged to our Monarch clinic. And the way our clinic works is that we see the babies for average about two or three visits and then they get um, discharged back into their primary care provider. So that's either a pediatrician or a family physician. Um, so right now what we're doing is we're screening all of our patients on the phone the night before and then as soon as they come in as well. And if they um, screen positive for symptoms, so not just like right now we're only doing testing swabs if they've had recent travel or a contact with a positive case or a suspected case or uh, travel with a respiratory illness or healthcare workers are being tested. Um, so if they screen, the positive screen for Monarch means any symptoms, so travel doesn't matter. Um, then what happens is they actually get a telephone call from me and I screen them and figure out where we're gonna go. And this is where we're struggling because we don't have this in place yet. Um, but currently what is happening is if the mom uh, is unwell but baby is okay, then we're bringing them into the clinic at the end of the day with a well support person for a quick wait and uh, billy check because we have a transcutaneous billy uh, machine that we can use as well. Um, so that's where we're at now. If they don't have anybody, we're not sure. The current plan is actually to send them back to the, the hospital. Um, to have an assessment there. So that's our current strategy. As of, I think it was yesterday, they've, um, there's no visitors allowed in the hospital anymore and every patient has to come through the main entrance and what they're doing is they're calling up to triage and a nurse and PPE comes down and will bring the patient up and then page the pediatrician on call. So I'd also call, uh, page the pediatrician or if it's an unwell mom, we also can send them back to you. Um, so I'd be paging the OB as well. So there's a bit of unclear, we're not sure what's going on exactly with that. Um, we're also struggling a little bit as to either our numbers are gonna go up because a lot of patients that you heard in the first hour want to stay with us and don't wanna go back to their family physicians or pediatricians because of the risk of infection with other patients there. So we might be keeping them a bit longer or we might be trying to move them out quicker and having actual specific triage um, or not triage, but other care clinics to see these patients specifically with some of our larger family medicine clinics in town. Um, sorry, I just wrote down a few things here that I'm making sure I'm not forgetting. Um, with the, uh, tel so currently for telemedicine, I'm just doing telephone call. In Ontario, we've been, we're allowed to use whatever platform we want. I can FaceTime the patients if I want, we're covered by it. Um, and they also released billing codes so we can bill for it as well. Um, in regards to um, public health, 
uh, because we heard Shauna in the first hour talking about that. Our public health is very strained at the moment. They've pulled all our nurses uh, into the telephone lines and assessment centers to be doing that. So they've actually shut down all of our breastfeeding um, drop-in clinics as well as the home visits. So if they screened high risk in the hospital or in our community clinics, they could have a home visit, but it's all been shut down. So Monarch is kind of a central area for where we're going to be screening and helping out with this uh, big lack in care at the moment. Um, a lot of the family physicians have moved to telemedicine now. And what they are, some of them are doing are having kind of a well clean clinic in the morning and then a sick clinic in the afternoon. So we're hoping also they might be able to bring some of those babies in for, for well checks. All vaccines have actually been held at the moment uh, while we're figuring out our plan. And then in regards to, I also do breastfeeding medicine. So looking at our breastfeeding consults, I'm probably gonna be doing those from home. And then if I need to, I have my team members at the clinic during the day too, that if I needed them to go in and do a quick weight check or to check for mastitis or something like that, that they, they can be seen as well. Um, and then one of the, I had asked a few questions in the first hour was about scales. So one of my thoughts was getting the public health scales and using those. Um, and uh, the other is renting from them somewhere else as well. And then having two, so people that can afford to rent, they could rent a home scale. Um, and for those that truly can't, we would have some of the public health scales perhaps to use. There's a lot up in the air. So that's kind of where we're at now. I think I hit a lot of things, but I'm open to questions, obviously. Thank you. That's a, that's a very good summary. It sounds like you're still in the progress of, you know, working things out, which we all are. One question I have for you, I saw something posted about telemedicine visits for primary care physicians in Canada that, um, that that's going to cause a huge hit income-wise for, I don't know if this is province, if this is related to, you know, if it's associated with certain provinces. So it, yeah, it's uh, province dependent based on how we're paid. Um, in Ontario, it's it's definitely huge. Like our our numbers have gone down a lot. So the there's different billing codes, but um, they're less for sure. Um, and I know Alberta, where Sean is from, uh, she could talk to it a bit more if she's still online. Um, they've been in a really big battle politically and and having a lot of healthcare cuts recently. And then I know the government has been making other changes. So. Um, with telemedicine bringing in kind of what sounds like she'll know better. I'm not 100% sure, but a large corporation to do the calls for family medicine, which would basically take away the business from what I understand from the current family physician offices. So we're trying to encourage all the patients there to still see their family physicians. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Did yeah. you want me to address, did you want me to address that yeah. at all? Sure. Sure. So um, yeah, unfortunately in Alberta, we have uh, been, battling our government to try and protect primary care. Unfortunately, they have um, kept our phone, video, or email code only paid at $20. So currently, we can't bill like a normal visit. They at least removed the cap on the number of phone calls or video calls you could make per week. But we cannot sustain ourselves with this billing code. We're hoping for an update tomorrow. So this has been a major problem. We can't keep our staff, we can't keep our offices with this payment. And so we have a lot of pressure on the government to change this for us. Uh, they've 
brought in this um, program called TELUS Babylon, which is essentially a virtual walk-in clinic to try and um, provide care. And unfortunately, like they are getting paid more than we are to do telemedicine and they have no access to patient charts. They have no responsibility. I hear that lots of times they just tell people to go to the emergency room, which is really, really inappropriate in this current state of affairs. Um, so we are- Yeah, thanks for sharing that. If you have some information that you can just like maybe post like in the chat, like any kind of website or Facebook chat discussion about that, that would be great. I think we're gonna just sure. kind of stay with yeah. the interesting issues. Um, okay, so um, I want to introduce uh, Dr. Lily Simon. Um, she is a pediatric critical care physician and a board certified lactation consultant um, at the university uh, and a clinical assistant professor at the University of Maryland School of Medicine in Baltimore. And uh, so Dr. Simon has another perspective on uh, just readiness in the intensive care unit. Hey, Lily. All right. Well, hi. So thank you for having me. Uh, I think I bring a different uh, set of, uh, um, I think, eyes to the COVID. I think we're, de we're definitely, uh, so I'm mainly I'm, I'm a pediatric intensivist, and I do some breastfeeding medicine with our patients in the PICU. Um, so um, I, we are um, working, of course, to, you know, prepare to, to receive all the critically ill kids that will probably come. Um, and we are changing some of the flow in the hospital, and I can talk about what we're doing so far. We haven't, we had, had we have had some patients under investigation uh, in the PQ, uh, but they all turned out to be negative so far. So we didn't have a positive patient yet. So some of the things that we are changing in terms of our routine from, you know, what you're doing in the hospital, I think starts from, uh, we are a big, um, we have a transport team and we uh, receive patients from all over Maryland. Um, so one of the things sometimes we, uh, we use to accept these patients directly to the PICU or, uh, or to the ED or occasionally to the floors. And so those patients are, um, every patient coming in um, to the hospital now with respiratory symptoms with suspicion, they need to have a respiratory viral panel done. So if we identify another virus, uh, then for instance, the patient has RSV or HMPV or something else, then we admit this patient and just treat them as, as usual, as, um, or you know, just to the level of care that they require. Uh, if, they, if the respiratory viral panel is negative, uh, then uh, we talk to ID. And uh, if the, the ID physicians uh, think that this could be they could could be COVID, then we send the COVID and we admit these patients to one of the uh, areas. So um, I mean, this start. So I I I started saying about transport. We're doing this on transport, saying that we're not. First of all, for transport, we're not accepting patients directly uh, to any place unless we know that they have another virus that's not COVID. Um, and if not, we send this patient to the emergency room and then they have to be tested before they come. They, they are admitted. Uh, for the admissions from the emergency room, that's what we're doing. I mean, we try to identify another source. Uh, and if we don't identify a source, then we talk to ID and then we have a joint decision if we are going to send COVID or not going to send COVID testing. If we do send COVID, then this, this is a uh, patient on investigation and uh, they go to a negative pressure room and stay there with, uh, with 
protective equipment until we have the results. That's usually we're able now to get the results. It takes about 48 hours for us to get the results. Um, some other changes that have happened is uh, we don't, we have a limited number of uh, negative pressure rooms uh, in the hospital in general. So for instance, uh, in the PICU, we have a 19 bed PICU and we have uh, two, only two negative pressure rooms. So of course we're leaving those open as much as we can to, you know, for, for patients under investigation. And as, as soon as the COVID test comes back negative, we've moved those patients out to, to open up the room. We, of course, we anticipate that this is not going to be enough and this is gonna be challenging. Um, so we are thinking that maybe we are gonna divide our unit in two and you know, one half of the unit, will, then we can create sort of a, a different flow and that, that will be a COVID sort of unit and the other unit will, will take care of the other patients. All of the elective surgeries uh, have been canceled uh, in the hospital as well. I, I think in, in, uh, 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 this happened in Maryland and at Hopkins as well. They all canceled all elective surgeries. Uh, the other thing that has changed in the hospital is um, that um, now they, they used to have a hospitalist service and the hospitalists uh, were not in-house. Uh, 24-7. Um, the University of Maryland recently opened an IMC service uh, and there was always an IMC provider or not always, sometimes an IMC provider in-house. Um, so the hospital also changed uh, what they're doing and um, now there's always, the plan is starting Monday, there's always going to be a, a hospitalist uh, in-house for the, for the floor as well. Um, the other thing that has been done to try to uh, uh, save some uh, protective equipment is that the residents are not seeing the COVID patients or the patients are in an investigation to try to save some protective equipment. Uh, so those are seen by attending only, or if they are in the PICU, they are seen by the attending and the fellow only. Um, to try to save some resources there as well, and also to try to um, not expose the residents so much. Mm -hmm. Of course, we have a lot of, you know, backup, you know, no, nobody can, no, no, nobody can travel, take vacation. Everybody needs to be available because if anybody needs to go in quarantine, of course, the PICU still needs to be staffed and uh, we have to be available to just chip in whenever we, we are needed. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's one question for you, and that is about the co-infection rate. Yes. Per, yeah. uh, I don't have an answer for that. And we know that, and we have discussed that, that that's, that's a problem. There is a co-infection rate, right? And, and the fact that the patient has RSV or HMPV doesn't mean that they don't have COVID. Um, it's, uh, we don't have a, a solution. And the, the one concern is that um, uh, they're very concerned that we're not going to have enough, uh, not only testing for COVID, but even for RSV, uh, that there's a limited amount of uh, the reagent that you, you have to send uh, both the COVID and the RSV, and we may, uh, the, the COVID and the respiratory viral panel, and we may actually not have enough. Uh, and I'm sure that's a problem, it's going to be a problem country-wise, not just, not just in Maryland, that we may just run out of, of the reagent to even send the, not, not even talking about the test itself, right? I mean, even to get to the testing site. Yeah, um, Liliana, where we are, they took the all of the 
little vials that you put the swabs into, they all have that liquid right. cultural medium yeah. and under sterile conditions, they split them all into two. So they have half as much to try to stretch them. Yeah, it, it, it has been an issue as well. Um, so these are the things that are sort of happening, you know, in the hospital in general, not, not related to breastfeeding. There are several, I mean, we can anticipate a lot of challenges regarding breastfeeding in the inpatient setting. Um, I, no, but that does give us an idea for, especially for people who aren't connected to a hospital of what, how we're, how we're trying to prepare. Now we're going to well, go. Jill, can I just say one thing? I think the other thing that, uh, just, just, uh, I'll, 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 I'll stop shortly. But I think the other thing that has been uh, very interesting and very good in the inpatient setting is that there has been also a lot of collaboration between adults and peds. Um, so, you know, one of the, the things that they're looking at is, uh, for instance, the adult side has more, they have more negative uh, pressure room. So uh, we may actually have a part of the, we have, you know, another sort of PICU in the adult floor. Of course, we'll need another attending and we need to, to send another, you know, PICU nur uh, nurses. But we, there's, there has been a lot of collaboration. We also have been receiving a lot of information from the PICU people in, and or the ICU and PICU people from Seattle. They are a few weeks ahead of us in this, uh, this infection and trying to prepare uh, for all of this. Yeah, I agree with you. We're having the opposite. They're actually looking. We have four negative pressure rooms that are on our postpartum floor, and they're telling us to anticipate that we're going to end up with sick adult patients in those rooms. Oh. So um, we're going to talk to Nan Dahlquist now, who's a pediatrician specializing in newborn care and um, breastfeeding medicine with a private pediatric clinic in Hillsborough, Oregon. Hi. So I think I think uh, Chandria really summarized what's happening in hospitals and obstetrics really well. Um, I know I work um, out of a private clinic. I round on babies at a major medical center that delivers probably half of all the newborns in the um, state of Oregon. And then I also work out of a small community hospital that's affiliated with our university. Um, and so both of these have developed your standard policies for um, moms who are positive for COVID with the primary plan to transfer babies out as soon as baby's born to um, isolation. And, and I know that we are, we are really, um, they're talking that probably within a week um, or we might be out of um, PPE for the hospitals and for sick patients. So we're becoming somewhat critical, um, that the availability is becoming rather critical. Um, the testing has just really um, been able to increase. We now have local testing, which all the tests are going outside of the state. Um, so in Oregon, we're three weeks in from our first target case of COVID in the state of Oregon. Um, I am kind of in that epicenter. We, 43 of those patients are out of my county, which is the highest number of any. And um, there's been 114 confirmed cases and four deaths. Those four deaths all in that target area, um, target um, population of the elderly infirmed. So currently there's uh, you know, policies in place. Um, I am still going in and rounding on my newborns. So far we have, seen no evidence of, again, it's just uh, no evidence of COVID in our labor and delivery um, areas, but that's relative as we've discussed at length before. Um, so I'm still going in and rounding on my newborns. I'm staying, you know, I'm doing my, I've always done 
take the stairs, sanitize my hands the minute I get on the floor, sanitize my hands the minute I get in the room, wash my hands immediately afterwards. So I am not using masks when I go in and see these families. Um, again, because I am 100% isolated from sick care in my clinic. I only see newborns and I only see well newborns. And the facility in my facility in the area of my clinic, I it's only for well care. Um, and we're being very, very complete in making sure that happens. So I am just washing and doing good hand washing before, after, um, and then after, you know, after using all of the computers outside, I don't access any computers within the room, only outside of the room, and then sanitize the minute I get in my car. So I'm doing everything I can to keep that all separate. Um, I do, and I, so I'm going to two different hospitals. I've determined that probably unless we have some kind of a for well newborns, I am not rounding on them on a daily basis. I'm checking in with the nurses. I'm doing telephone evaluations. I'm talking to parents, but um, I'm not going in. And for our normal um, vaginal deliveries, multip moms, no complications, they are going home at 24 hours. Um, our primips, rarely are normal and uncomplicated and so they're usually going home at 48 hours our um our c-sections are pretty much 48 to 72 hours and the problem is in one in that major hospital setting are um any mom who has um, a history of preeclampsia elevated blood pressure during her delivery air time actually is having to stay for 72 hours. So I'm not sure if there will be some modification for women who are slightly lower risk with hypertension versus higher risk with hypertension. Um, so, so far we haven't had any babies separated. I have worked with the um, perinatal group to try to make sure that they're familiar with the ABM protocol um, on trying to keep families together as best as possible because they've this major hospital system has become rather lax at making sure that moms are pumping and, and are able to establish a vigorous milk supply. So we're really working to try to keep that going um, and to keep that. The smaller hospital, the policy at place, because it is such a small hospital and they don't have um, available rooms to be separating everybody out there in the process of building an NICU and a peds floor, but they're not complete yet. And so, um, in that hospital, the plan is, is to set up a plan with all um, pertinent providers to have a, a say in what's best to do with that family. The most likely case if they're that sick, they're going to be transferred to the university hospital and managed there, which is a much more robust system. Um, so um, one question I have is, um, so just um, going through the basics again for some people who are starting to develop policies at their clinics, if a mother comes in, and maybe Chandra can help this too, um, is if a mother comes in and she's in labor and she has some mild cold symptoms um, and testing, depending on where you're at, you know, where she delivers is going to vary in terms of test results and whether or not they're testing. Some people have said that those mothers are being separated automatically from their babies postpartum um, until it's proven that they don't have COVID. And um, so I think that there's a lot of different interpretations of the CDC recommendations. And I'm wondering what's happening, what your recommendations are for people who are dealing with that. We, Personally, we don't have I the resources. Yeah. Oh, Andrea, why don't you, Sorry, why don't you we don't have the resources to separate every single dyad with a sniffle. 
Um, but we will probably going forward recommend at a minimum that they use the six foot separation in the room and hand washing until something can be determined because there just aren't that there just isn't that many rooms available for people like there's just no way that we can separate those moms and babies right. And, right. and that's exactly at our at our facilities even our larger facilities they're talking about moving them over to the pediatric floor which is going to be a different floor than the sick mom um, and i just don't think that is the best use of resources especially when things are getting a little critical that keeping those babies and those moms we have big enough rooms we don't have little tiny um, specialty care unit rooms that would um, preclude six foot separations between moms and babies and so um, I'm highly advocating for that and I made sure that the policymakers at our hospital knew about the ABM policy that They'll incorporate that because most of them are taking that ACOG approach that Anne you referenced to a little while ago, um, or a few days ago, that, that the first step is to separate them. But mm -hmm. I just don't think that's practical. Hey, this is Karen. I just want to throw out a third approach because it um, may come into play for some people and they're talking about it where I am, which is we have a giant you know 50 bed floor and we have a nursery that we use and a second nursery that we keep empty most of the time and they're talking about doing some cohorting of babies in the second nursery if the moms are not sick but they're PUIs keeping those babies in there more than six feet from each other I think there's some amount of insanity that is going I think on. that's ridiculous um but I think, you know, there are a lot of issues from keeping the milk, you know, if there's pumped milk, how is that going to be kept clean to, you know, who are these supposed healthy caregivers that are going to be taking care of babies if they're separated? Part of the reason the cohort plan has come up is because they have this thought that, you know, one nurse could take care of multiple babies if we don't have the staffing, they're taking our potentially going to take a lot of our postpartum staff to work in other places in the hospital, um, which is, I think, another reason that it'll be better in the end if moms particularly are not ill to have their babies with them. I think if they're coughing all over their baby, that is not good. Right. There's some real inconsistency to that approach um, because, again, you've got a nurse who's working with a variety of newborns, and it's going to be really hard to have enough PPE to keep to, to change out every time she goes to a new baby. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Lima brought up um, an issue in the chat about the AAP section of neonatal and perinatal medicine taking a stronger stance on separation, separating the COVID positive than the COVID positive, oh, and ill mothers basically who are under investigation from their babies. But um, as you say, the, um, both of you, that this may, that may be a recommendation, but it's going to be impossible to do that because of the space. But this is something where for anyone who does have any influence on these policies, I think that um, I'm personally very fearful about the separation. I think we all are. I think we all understand that mothers may have a very difficult time establishing breastfeeding and we're putting these um, babies at risk, I feel, if we cannot make sure that they're breastfeeding and then making sure that the staff has the ability to teach hand expression um, and then transferring that colostrum that's expressed early. You know, pumping is one thing, but pumping isn't gonna work in the first 24 hours. 
So they're going to have to hand express and know how to do it well and have a way of transferring that colostrum to the infant. Um, and then, of course, if the infant separated, there's that risk of the infant getting sick from someone else. Um, yeah, I think that's what would scare me the most if I was a new mom. Like, you're going to put my baby where and who is going to be with them? Right, exactly. Yeah, because that person could be... Um, could be um, asymptomatically shedding anyway. I and mean, we have to assume that it's like influenza at a certain point, everyone's probably carrying it or is spreading it or in the early stages or whatever. Um, yeah. And so Can then, I throw, yeah. oh, go ahead. I guess, I guess I wanted to, I know that we're gonna talk about neonatology and maybe this question segues into the, um, talking to Dr. Meyer, Myers, who's our last panelist, about really the risk to these infants of COVID. and. We've heard so much about elderly people dying. And one of my office partners looked at, like he crunched the numbers for the people who died in Italy so far. And the vast majority of them are like over 80. Um, and I know people are hospitalized quite a bit, but the actual deaths are much higher among the elderly and the, and the immunocompromised. And so then, you know, um, how, what, what is the risk for a baby who's breastfeeding? Um, Lily, do you have any idea? Or, um, we can bring on Dr. Myers as well. And unless you want to um, talk first, Karen, and ask something else. Well, I, um, I'll just briefly touch on that and say there was a case report out of Singapore of a six-month-old who was hospitalized only because both of the parents were ill and needed hospitalization. And there was, you know, baby became an experiment because they thought they were probably exposed and there wasn't anyone else to take care of that baby baby um, had high viral loads, but was very well, had a brief self-resolving temperature of like 100.5 for less than an hour. That, um, And so I think there's a lot of good news in the data that we're seeing out of Seattle. They had 4,000 tests of children who were suspected and only about three were positive. Um, so I find that to, to be very reassuring. But I think it is important for us to keep in mind that we still are at risk as providers and trying to make smart decisions so that we can stick around and keep taking care of all these patients. I had two related ideas for um, sort of more of the public health approach to dealing with hospital. One was there are some people who've been posting about making prenatal breastfeeding education available free online and trying to help our systems encourage people to get that education where they might not have gone before if there was a charge for a live class to help them be more prepared when they get to the hospital. And secondly, um, trying to work with our systems to convert some of these new mom support groups to Zoom meetings. I mean, after using it today, I'm like, wow, this is really easy to run. That might be a source of support for some of those people who, you know, both emotionally and just keeping them from making complete wrong turns with their formula supplementation may be really important. Yeah, I actually thought it's so funny. We, I guess we think alike sometimes. Um, <laughs> I was thinking yesterday that- That is I, great to hear. I'm so happy. My, my to-do list is to maybe put together, like have a number of physicians um, who are on today or anyone um, put together like a quick um, recorded uh, uh, slideshow, you know, on, uh, on prenatal care, on, pre on uh, prenatal breastfeeding education. And, um, and then have it be for any, you know, have it be for free. We can put it on our website 
and then have anyone, um, any families watch this because I think that's one of the big issues that I'm seeing on Facebook and among other groups is that uh, people don't know where to go for prenatal education because the groups are closed. So if anyone's interested in putting together a prenatal class, let me know. I think we could do that really easily through our organization and get that up there. Hi, it's uh, Joss. We actually do this at Monarch. Um, we've been doing a prenatal through, I believe it's through Zoom actually, for a little bit now. We started it back in the fall. Great. Yeah, I think having something pre-recorded that they could just watch, yeah. you know, whenever they oh, can. Oh yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. Um, okay, so um, the, our last um, panelist today is uh, Dr. Eliza Myers. She's a neonatologist and breastfeeding medicine specialist and is an assistant professor of pediatrics at Yale School of Medicine and the, medicine direct, the medical director of the neonatal intensive care unit at the Yale New Haven Children's Hospital at the Bridgeport campus. This campus is an 18-bed level 3 NICU that supports the much larger greater than 60-bed level 4 academic NICU in New Haven. Hi, Liza. Hi. Can you hear me? Yes. Sounds good. Um, thanks so much for having me. And um, I wanted to, um, Chandria's summary was so like thorough and really mirrors a lot of what is happening in the greater Yale system. And then I was listening with interest to the discussions about separating and non-separating. And um, are the in the absence of better information, the Yale system is taking a lot of guidance from what's on the CDC, from the CDC guidelines, um, which describe that the baby um, should be considered a person under investigation until proven otherwise. But from a practical perspective, our testing has gotten pretty fast. So um, we can get a test result in a little over eight hours at the in the New Haven campus they can get it they can get their test results back in six hours and because we have to carry our courier ours up and back again uh, or I guess we only have to courier it one way the we're more like eight plus hours and so in the last couple of days we have separated a couple of mother baby dyads I'm thinking of one baby that um, one well baby nursery mother baby dyad and then one a baby that was a NICU patient in whom the father developed a febrile illness um, and we made the baby, we, we tested the baby um, while the father was being tested. So that from a practical perspective has been very helpful because it's, um, there hasn't been a lot of personal protective equipment used, you know, it's not days of separation, for example. Um, and then thinking about, uh, Somehow the issue of what do we do with mom's milk while she's pumping it and getting ready to, you know, if mom is COVID positive or COVID potential and is pumping milk, nobody's made a big deal about how the milk will be handled. I was just thinking about, I think Chandria's suggestion is exactly right. I think that the, I think the milk gets, a cap goes on and it gets wiped down. Um, there was an article that the New York Times summarized the other day about the behavior of the COVID droplets. And luckily it seems like a droplet that's pretty well behaved. It's easy to kill on surfaces and it's not particularly aerosolizable. So I think that's good for us. Um, in terms of babies, I have not done a thorough literature search, but my understanding is that they don't really get sick, which is great for us. And so a lot of our worry and planning and concern isn't so much about the medical management of our patients, it's the, it's the conserving our staff. 
So we've taken the same scary restrictions for visitors. Um, in the NICU, there can be one visitor at a time per baby, and it has to be one of the two banded parents with no, um, the other parent can't even wait in the hospital, unfortunately, because they don't want visitors wandering around. The rest of the hospital has no visitors. Um, so it's, and those are really measures to protect the staff, obviously, not, not the patients, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Any, any questions about um, NICU care? We've heard from some of the neonatologists that they have not um, felt that so far things have really changed much. And, um, you know, you're always dealing with a very vulnerable population and you know before the COVID thing you were probably careful about like during flu season if parents were ill to have kind of similar recommendations it yes i agree it my personal workload does not feel different it's just the mood of the hospital feels different and there are some other changes that are um noticeable a lot of the purell dispensers have been taken off the wall and replaced with a sign that says purell's being conserved please go find a sink and wash your hands and mm -hmm. um gloves are no longer kept in patients rooms because the boxes of gloves were disappearing um so there's stuff like that that sort of is a constant reminder but our our actual workload and our actual workflow isn't much different i guess we we used to have um family-centered rounds and invite families to sit with us in our workroom. And our um, workroom isn't quite big enough for that. So we've actually separated our, we all sit in our own corner of the workroom, which looks and feels a little bit weird and to get as far away from one another as possible. And we don't allow the parents in anymore. And so, and parents understand that. So they either get a phone call after rounds or a, um, a personal visit where we stand six feet away and tell them, the day's update. Mm -hmm. uh, can, can, this is Lily. Can I just make a few comments here sure. and a question for Eliza? So a comment is we, we had a, in the PQ, we have been using Zoom uh, with the parents who are not, not able to be in the hospital for now, I think two years. And it's, it's working really, I mean, it's worked really well. So that's an option to Zoom in the parents doing. So you can still do, uh, you know, patient center care with the parents and grounds. And uh, I have a question for Eliza. Sure. Uh, has you seen, uh, has it been an issue of getting this milk into the hospital? You know, once the patient, the moms are discharged, um, one of the concerns is that now there's decrease in public transportation as well, and you know, decreasing access to the hospital in general. Uh, are, are you able to actually receive the milk to the hospital for this, the, your NICU babies who are, you know, who still need, need the milk and the moms have, are not in the hospital anymore. It hasn't come up specifically, but I can imagine a circumstance where it will. Um, we're very fortunate to have um, the Friends of the NICU has um, a fund for helping patients with things like Uber cards to get around. Although I don't know, can you still take an Uber anymore? I don't. I you make you make a great point. I don't even know if they have Uber anymore. Um, so. I don't know that that may become something that I have to think yeah, through. Because we were starting to brainstorm on how to even get the milk. If you get somebody to bring it to the hospital and are you going to give it to security and somehow get it to the PQ? 
are we, you know, somebody is going to go down, but of course you can't have a staff go down all the time to get the, the, the mail. Kind of, we're, we're starting to brainstorm. Yeah. Could it, well, uh, one, anticipate that this may be an issue. Per, I get the banded person could bring it up or perhaps it would be delivered right. to security and brought up. It should already be labeled because people have taken the labels home, but you're right. What if they haven't been in the hospital? These are great questions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's also, um, yeah, I think that's, that's one area that like our, at our level for NICU, um, the lactation consultants have had questions about just the, the, the handling um, and the, um, like the, yeah, how milk is actually getting to the hospital and how it's going from a mother who may be hospitalized at the UW and then a baby in the NICU, like what's a safe, what's a safe way of transferring that milk. Um, I wanted to just point out too that Havana did put out their statement. Um, regard, I, there may be some questions about donor milk as well. I don't know. Um, Eliza, if you've had some questions from, I, I assume you use donor milk in your NICU. We do, and, yes. Um, yeah. and the milk bank that we buy our milk from has um, said that they're going to prioritize the NICU patients, that they're not going to be um, using milk for or I don't know if they specifically said they're not going to give it anymore to the well or sell it anymore to well baby nurseries, but they want to make sure that their NICU populations have, um, that they're prioritizing the NICU populations. But I've been framing this in both the NICU and the well baby nursery as, as like, this is a moment to really, um, to ramp up our efforts to, um, to help mothers provide and produce their own milk because this is this could be incredibly important or devastating to the NICU population to lose this source of human milk. Right, and I think that that's um, that's an interesting point because I think that in talking to another neonatologist, uh, there's a critical need to train NICU nurses in the field of just you know basic breastfeeding anatomy and physiology. That that's not something that is like for baby friendly hospital nurses, if they're, if a hospital is baby friendly, there is an educational, you know, there's education, there's training, there's 18 hours of training, but for NICU nurses, they haven't really been part of that. And so there are some NICUs around where, you know, sometimes mothers may not be, you know, encouraged to pump for the first 12 to 24 hours until the baby's settled in or whatever. So we, so we do need to really encourage mother's own milk and mother's own milk is superior to uh, donor milk for sure. So, yeah. Yeah, um, I think um, Lori has, Lori uh, Winter, would you like to talk about um, your, the recommendations for PPE um, guidance for your hospital? Hi hey everyone. Um, so yeah, so my organization, um, we're close to Philly and um, New Jersey is one of the five states that has like an absolute lockdown. So we've converted everything to telephone telemedicine. And um, for those healthcare workers that are in the hospital, I think the most critical issue that's facing everyone now is how to um, conserve the PPE that we have available. And, um, and so the organization created guidance for when to don a mask and um, a lot of people were um, trying to reuse, but every time they reuse, they would um, touch the mask, which virtually renders the mask useless. So really if um, you're in a situation where you're seeing patients rapidly, 
uh, such as an ICU setting or at the ED, uh, the recommendation is to just keep it on continuously, not to touch your face and just keep the mask on continuously so that it doesn't have to be reused or discarded after touching. And so, um, so this um, grid just helps provide some additional guidance for um, when PPE needs to be used, which um, really is for the patient that's under investigation that is symptomatic and, um, and, and which masks um, need to be worn, in that case, the N95 respirators, um, eye shields, gown, and gloves. So, so I, I just, I thought this was helpful for those that are in that setting, um, providing care. Thanks. I want to mention that um, I've heard a couple interesting things about PPE. One is that um, my aunt and uncle are living in Phoenix right now, and there's a distillery right down the street, and people can come anytime and get their own hand sanitizer that the distillery is making from their own alcohol. And you can bring your own bottle, and it's like BYOB to the distillery, and then they fill it up with, um, rather than booze, they fill it up with hand sanitizer. Yeah, um, a lot of the beer manufacturers in this area have actually converted their production from oh, beer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So they're re repurposing. Right. That's, a, that's great. Beer. I mean, you know, well, people can't sit on a bar, might as well get hand sanitizer. And then um, our engineering students are uh, 3D printing face mats, uh, the face shields. Um, and our pharmacy school is making hand sanitizer as well. And then um, I talked to a friend who is the who is a clinic coordinator or uh, medical director, or not medical director, but um, administrative director for a FQHC in Milwaukee. Um, and they struggle financially. They mostly serve um, people who are mentally ill, and uh, they are reaching out to some volunteer groups to sew some masks and cloth. It's something that the CDC mentioned as a last resort, and right now they're feeling that they are at the last resort. Um, although there looks like there's also some research showing that cloth masks are not very helpful. And so one other thing in our community, one of the local is, um, is looking at taking some of the um, defined, you know, sterile fabrics that are in the hospital. They are not really fabrics; they're paper. But and um, seeing if if um, constructing face masks, sewing face masks out of the um, the protective fabrics that are available, um, if that would be an option instead of trying to do the the cloth. Right. That may. I was thinking about that too. That makes total sense because if you're using this because it's also going to be droplet protective and um, it, it's breathable, you know, has a lot of qualities that would make sense. And it can be sterilized after it's been created. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Um, yeah, any other comments I think we're closing in on? Hi, it's uh, Jocelyn. Can I talk just about the PPE? Sure. Just some other ideas. So I actually put out a social media call and got um, inundated with um, people offering. Um, what we actually did is we've used our medical students because they're not really doing anything. And I have a group of them that are organizing to call dentist offices, like anything you could think of. One of the really big things that I was able to do was I linked with an old uh, friend who works at research labs and she tweeted out and started a whole file for all research labs to donate 
stuff. So we've been able to pick up a whole bunch of N95 surgical masks. Um, they're going to be making some sanitizer. We also did the distilleries in the area as well. Um, restoration people have some as well. So there's there's a whole bunch of ideas. So if you put that out, and uh, I'm not sure what your medical students are doing, but they've really mobilized to help out. They've also put lists together to provide healthcare or um, healthcare providers with um, babysitting, going grocery shopping, errands and stuff like that as well. Great. Yeah, that is, that's a really great idea. And I see some other people have had other ideas like nail salons, vet clinics, et cetera. Um, we have just a few more minutes and we do have um, Dr. Monica um, from Brazil. And I wonder if Monica would like to talk about what's, um, Carceles, who, I wonder if you'd like to talk about what's going on in Brazil. Hello, Anne. Hi. How are you? In Brazil, we are doing many different things. Uh, we try to follow protocols, but in hospitals, some hospitals are using masks to attend in, uh, symptomatic patients and others are not. And because patients are very afraid because many nurses and doctors attend the patients and they are afraid to to take to have the virus the the nurses have the virus so we don't we try to follow protocols not use the masks or uh, gloves or gowns but it's very difficult to follow this because the patients are very afraid and mm -hmm. Uh, we didn't have in our hostel or any hostel that I know any patients, any pregnant women with COVID-19 yet, but they will appear very soon, I, I think. I'm very happy to, to be with you here so I can see that everybody has difficulties. So it's very, very good to be here. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for joining us. Yeah, and then um, we have Yvonne before. Um, Yvonne, I don't know if you um, can join in to talk about what's going on in New Zealand. I don't know if she's still on or not. She was on earlier. And she Hi. did post, She this is Nan Dahlquist. She did post on Facebook. Yvonne did that. Um, they're actually moving her clinic away from the medical center. And so they're, I think that's what she's probably doing right now is they're gonna move her clinic into a, a secondary site that gets them away from the main medical center and, um, and try to be a little more um, secluded. I see, okay. And I don't know that we have anyone from Australia. Um, I think uh, Marnie Rowan was going to join us, but I don't think she ended up joining us, so. Um, okay, well, thank you to everyone. It's, um, I think we'll, it's exactly uh, four o'clock central. And um, this was just so informative and I feel like many of us are experiencing very similar things. And, um, and so I think we, and, and I've learned uh, quite a bit from, from others as well. Um, and so if you would like to have two SERPs, there's, we'll, we'll be providing one L SERP and one E SERP for this conversation. Um, I did put the link to that um, evaluation in the, uh, in the chat and I can, let me see if I still have it in my, yep. And I'm gonna just put that in again so you can use that link 
So thank you so much again. And then this recording will be available in about a day or two after we compress it and, and uh, alter it. It'll be in our podcast series. Um, and feel free to share it. And then we will try to have um, continuing, uh, we'll have enduring education SERPs so that anyone who watches it could get two free SERPs. Thanks. Thanks, Anne. Great job organizing. Thank you. Very timely. Thank you. Thanks, Anne. That was fantastic. Take care, everyone. Stay safe. For questions regarding this podcast, please contact us through our website at lacted.org. We have other educational projects, including the Clinical Question of the Week, our Little Green Book of Breastfeeding Management for Physicians, and our various educational courses and conferences for physicians and other breastfeeding supporters. If you want to see what we look like, check out our Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast Facebook page, where you can post any questions or comments about our podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back with you in about four weeks.